I'm Nick Harvey Doyle, an Anawan man from the northern tablelands of New South Wales. The Yarn podcast is made on the unceded land of the Wurundjeri, Woiwurrung and Bunurong people. We'd like to acknowledge First Nations people as the first storytellers. We pay our respects to elders past and present. Always was, always will be Aboriginal land. From the Centre for Advancing Journalism at the University of Melbourne, this is The Yarn. I'm Thomas Phillips. In the aftermath of the Vietnam War, tens of thousands of refugees fled their country to start a new life in Australia. Many of them found jobs as outworkers, fashion workers who sewed from home instead of at garment factories. Although their role was vital to our fashion industry, their work was often overlooked, unregulated, and deeply exploitative. Today, we're bringing you the first episode of the Critical Fashion Studies podcast. To hear the rest of the series, be sure to subscribe to the official feed in the show notes and stay tuned for season two in 2023. For episode one, lecturers Harriet Richards and Anissa Better spoke to Kim Lamb, an illustrator, and Emma Doe, the editor of Frankie Magazine. They're the co-authors of Working From Home, a book that tells the stories of Vietnamese outworkers in Australia. Harriet started by asking Emma and Kim what drew them to the project. I started thinking about, you know, these stories of outworkers probably around 2014, 2015, when I was a freelance writer writing about local Melbourne fashion. And I just saw, you know, a lot of marketing on social media at the time about who made certain designer brands' clothes. You know, they would partake in something called Fashion Revolution, which is a global initiative to highlight the people who make our clothes. So lots of uh, local brands were taking photos of their makers. They'd be going into factories and spotlighting the people who are responsible for like sewing their clothes every day. And I noticed that quite a few of these people were Vietnamese. I am Vietnamese. I was born in Australia, but I have a Vietnamese background. And I was surprised at that. I didn't know that there was a big Vietnamese community in the fashion production like industry. So that was what first piqued my interest. But I didn't really think too much more about it until... Uh, one of my closest friends told me about her mum, who was an outworker, which means she sewed for different clothing brands from her own home rather than in a factory. And I thought it was interesting that she finally told me and she kind of talked about it as being a little bit ashamed about it because it wasn't a traditional job. It wasn't well paid and everyone else's parents at school did something like, you know, working an office job or working in a shop. Um, so I really wanted to unpick those stories because I thought there was something more there that I didn't know and I wanted to learn about the Vietnamese community in Australia through this trade. I essentially just asked every single Vietnamese person that I knew in my life whether they knew someone who had been an outworker and sewed from home and nearly all of them said yes. They had a relative, a family, friend, a parent who had done this line of work some of them were really happy to share their contact details so that I could go and interview their parents or their relative. And when I started doing that, that was probably around 2016, I interviewed both the parents and the children and the stories were really touching. There was a lot of raw emotion, I think, that hadn't been expressed before. And so I didn't know what to do with this information that I'd collected. And then I randomly reached out to Kim one day. So, I mean, Kim, maybe you can tell the story about how we launched the project from there. 
Yeah, just just briefly, it was the power of Instagram. Um, Emma and I had been following each other's works in bits and pieces over the years, and I greatly admired Emma's, not sure if I'm allowed to say this, your secret famous blog that you had a very long time ago, as well as uh, print publications that we had both worked on uh, separately. And we met up at a cafe just before the pandemic, And Emma told me about this project idea that she had, and it immediately resonated because I grew up amidst at work, not with my own parents doing the at work, although they did start off working in textile factories, but aunties and uncles, family friends who we were babysat at after school. So there must have been around four or six different families that me and my sister stayed at like their homes after school and So it was just a rush of memory as memory tends to come back as soon as one small link is mentioned. Um, So from there, we started a project timeline (laughs) and then you had a book in April. We we applied for a grant uh, a couple of times and then when we were finally successful, I think it was 2020 Mm -hmm. and we were going into lockdown. So actually the majority of the book was written in lockdown um, Mm -hmm. when everyone was working from home. And we came up with the title before the pandemic. So Really? Yeah. <laughs> oh, that's beautiful. Kind of full circle. Mm. There are so many amazing stories in the book, both from home workers themselves as well as from their children who remember growing with their parents constantly sewing. Could you share with us one of the stories that has stuck with you the most or maybe that has changed the way you think about the industry? A story that comes up in this moment is uh, a maker who has six children and with English being her additional language and it not being strong yet at the start of her career, she had trouble following some of the patterns that were given to her from the factory. And so it was her story of how she sewed 200 pairs of pants in one go to find out later on that she'd sewn them the opposite way. And that led to her having to unpick them all and re-sew them all because the onus is on the maker to remedy that. And so that made me think of the craftsmanship of a single piece of clothing, yet when you think of them at that great quantity of the hundreds, you then associate it more with the tedium and loss of morale when it's done wrong and how instead of a maker you kind of think of units of automatons churning out things like machinery themselves And it makes me think of all of the bodies of the world that we need to clothe and how there's such a great surplus in the fashion industry um, and how it's driven a lot by desire and want, I guess, and not really need. Um, And so just like the impact on a single individual there really got me because I'm still not super frugal with my clothing choices, but I hope that it's helped me like a little bit subconsciously, unconsciously. Yeah, I agree with Kim. Like every story and every interview that we did for the book was so affecting and moving. Just spending time with every maker in their space, in their home space, just was very intimate and we knew we were being let into a place that not many people would be let into. But I think the other part of this whole story that really drew me in is the fact that these makers aren't working in a factory but they're working from their home space where they were also looking after their children and it's a family space. So the work and home life, there was no border, no separation between that. It all kind of all blurred into one. That especially came through in Tan's story. 
she was a maker who learnt sewing in Vietnam and then came over here and her first job was as an outworker because she had heard of the job through her friends. It was kind of easy to get into. And I think a lot of the time when uh, we're talking about outworkers, we think of them as these exploited people and in certain cases they, they really were, but we look at them as victims of this very exploitative fashion industry. But when we spoke to Tan, what was really beautiful was the fact that she was really grateful for the job and for her it was empowering in the way that she didn't know English when she came to Australia. This was maybe one of the only jobs she could get as a refugee, who'd a newly arrived refugee. She um, was able to make money for her family and she raised three kids and she was very proud of doing so. And she spoke also about how the job gave her the opportunity to like look after her kids and educate them in Vietnamese culture because she could stay at home with them. You know, they didn't go to preschool. They didn't have grandparents to look after them. So she's really proud of the fact that all of her three kids speak Vietnamese and that she was able to give them a good life just through sewing. And she's also very savvy. Like she told us so many stories about the fact that when she was given low paying jobs, she stood up for herself. And she said, you know, my skill level is actually a lot higher than other people that you have, so pay me more. And I just love that because I think, again, we kind of frame this whole story as these workers don't have any agency. But when you look at it, they do, at an individual level, have a limited amount of agency and they were able to advocate for themselves. Okay, this is a question for you, Kim, your illustrations. I just think they're so beautiful and evocative. How did you sort of approach the task of bringing these stories to life through your drawings? Uh, so I was lucky to accompany Emma to most of the interviews after those initial ones that she did as part of her research. So we got to sit on living room floors and in common rooms and kitchens. And so I got to meet uh, most of the interviewees myself. So starting from that, I took some photos on my nifty phone just for reference to help with the visual memory. And then I really took a lot of inspiration directly from the words, so from uh, the draft that Emma was writing, as well as directly from the oral histories of the interviewees. I'm also very word-centric myself, so all of my concepts and illustrations do tend to start off with words and concepts of brainstorming rather than doodling and seeing where that goes. And I also wanted to add some constraint to the colour palette so the book is mainly in blues, so indigos and lilacs and blood orange and green, just so that it was more about the lines and Emma's words as well, rather than to be too colourful. Uh, and I wanted to have the element of the hand in there as well, given that this is a book about makers who really the, their work is completely dependent on their dexterity. And the element of the hand would come through with all of the oral history being handwritten in my handwriting and a few pull quotes were done using my mum's handwriting so I asked her to write things, oh <laughs> write God. quotes from the interviewees maybe about five times each on a scrap piece of paper on the back of receipts and she um, generously did that for me and then I yeah, based, based that entirely on her handwriting because there is a certain way that Vietnamese parents of that generation write and we got that feedback from people who read the book as well that it was very familiar handwriting their parents had the same handwriting yeah I'm not a natural portrait artist so to draw the faces if I try too hard it wouldn't honor how they really were their likeness so the actual way I managed to do that was just to keep thinking about the person and all of their energy and try and channel that through the hand mm -hmm. 
Yeah, I mean, that comes through in the images. It's very evocative. And I think, yeah, channeling the energy is just a beautiful <laughs> way to describe it. It's really fantastic. And I mm -hmm. love that, yeah, you used your mum's handwriting. That really adds another layer to it, especially as it's, you know, the hand comes through once again. Thank you, Kim, for explaining that. But maybe, Emma, you could tell us a little bit more about how you worked with the images and maybe how the collaboration really played out. Yeah, it was a really new process for me because I'd only ever done written pieces, you know, supplemented with photos and that kind of thing. But I'd never worked on this combined zine book project where for one section there would be oral history and then you'd flow straight into a narration of, of history and then you'd dip back out into, you know, a scene uh, drawn by Kim, you know, with equipment and that kind of stuff labelled. So it was like a new, it was a completely new learning experience for me and I enjoyed every bit of it. A lot of the process was uh, me writing and then figuring out whether what I had written would be better in illustration form or comic form or just as a straight written word. And so that was a constant back and forth with Kim and I to discuss, you know, how the project would be the most engaging because I definitely didn't want it to be just like a really long essay. I wanted images and I wanted the emotion to come through, whether that's in the handwriting or whether that is in the illustrations. It does come through. You can definitely tell that. And for me, reading it really highlight the difficulties that the garment workers, the outworkers experience. And I feel like the book tells the story really, really well. And there are these stories about the labor and the pain that they experience because of the labor, right? So maybe Emma and Kim, if you can talk us through some of the more challenging stories. I think a really common story that we heard from maybe every participant was that they experienced, you know, some form of back pain, pain in their hands and their joints, because a lot of the actual physicality of sewing work means being crouched over a sewing machine and a lot of the home setups you know I'm not sure if there was OH&S back there when was. they were working but it was probably quite dim lighting and in some cases poor ventilation and these are just things that the workers didn't know to do themselves because oftentimes they were working out of their garage or their lounge room so yeah those kinds of workplace injuries were really common and we had one participant Auntie Dow she had to stop sewing in the early 2000s, I think it was, because these injuries just became too much. So that was really difficult to hear. You know, she lost her main form of income. And a particularly harrowing story, I think, was another auntie who we won't name, but her family believed that she got lung cancer or a form of cancer from the fabric dust because she sewed for many, many years and she sewed at such high intensity um, and her her family did as well. And so they believe that it's it was the fabric dust from, say, an overlocking machine because that just shreds. Perhaps she inhaled that throughout those decades and that perhaps led to cancer. But that was really difficult to hear and, and really, really tragic. Yeah, there are the very big injuries, but then there's like just those small everyday injuries. So one of our interviewees, Twee, her mum was sewing to the point of exhaustion one night and fell asleep on a pin cushion and she witnessed that. So that's very hard to see your own mum have to go through that. But there was also that sense of stoicism and not wanting to seem like a victim that I think, at least at the end of the book, it sort of made them ill eventually because not wanting to be seen as a victim, which was really important for 
I think the immigrants and the refugees at that time in particular, because they're the first to come here, they want to provide better livelihood for their children. Yeah, I think you nailed it when you said that's um, very much an immigrant refugee mentality when you are the first to come over here you are probably supporting you know family back home you're supporting your kids over here in a new place where you might not know the language so yeah we found that when we were speaking to the aunties and uncles the attitude was just that when they came over here they put their head down and they did as much hard work as they could and the injuries that arose from that were just part of the journey and that was maybe part of just the sacrifice of establishing a new life and just like finding work in a new place. And I think it was interesting to observe how the children felt about their parents' work ethic. I would say the majority of the children we interviewed didn't want to live that way. They appreciated their parents' sacrifice, but they didn't want to see their parents suffer anymore. And they certainly didn't want that for themselves. And I mean, that makes me reflect more on the the state of the fashion industry here in Australia today. And I think in the last 20 years since the establishment of the No Sweatshop label in the late 1990s, which then of course became Ethical Clothing Australia, the Australian fashion industry has kind of done a lot to, I guess, clean up its act, if you like, and support garment workers to ensure that they have access to fair wages, superannuation, and other workers' rights. And so I wonder, in the course of conducting this research and and writing the book, whether you kind of saw what the fashion industry is like now. I know there's far less home workers in the industry today than they used to be. I mean, you kind of trace that really beautifully in the book about this kind of boom time and then how that's changed. But perhaps you could talk to us a little bit about what you know about home working and outworkers in the industry at the moment. I know that's actually quite difficult for the union to trace themselves because a lot of home working flies under the radar if it's not properly recorded. So it is a bit of a shadow workforce. But I know that over the years, you know, many of the outworkers and the Vietnamese outworkers were probably the last wave to be in the industry. But many of them have aged and, you know, they're probably in their 60s now. So they've either retired, especially since a lot of the work has moved offshore, or some of them, like one of our interviewees, Tan, she went and got a job in the factory and after however many decades of working from home, and that was a really big adjustment for her. But I think, you know, she's, she's definitely enjoying it a lot more. Um, and she, she actually said to us, oh, the working conditions are too good. I don't need the union. <laughs> she really likes how, you know, her days are structured and she gets all these break times and it's much less intense. But back to your question, the union has told me that there definitely still are home workers. The union mentioned, uh, say, African refugees or more, more recent refugees and migrants. And there still definitely are Vietnamese outworkers out there. But as a whole, I think outworkers as a force in manufacturing are much smaller than it was in the 80s. And I, I'm not even sure of its future. I think the future is getting back into factories in Australia I know the ECA does really good work promoting, you know, an ethical workforce and they try and make it as easy as possible for a designer to find an ethical factory. So I think they are pushing people to go towards a factory. Yeah, absolutely. When I was speaking to the union and various people through the book, they were talking about how you can still subcontract out to home workers, but it's a lot more regulated than Mm -hmm. it was back in the day. So essentially, if you have out workers now, you have to pay them the same amount as you would if they worked in the factory. So that's to try and stamp out, you know, outworking being a more cost-efficient and exploitative way to get clothes made. Yeah, I mean, the work of ECA has done a lot. So I think that's interesting that 
you know, we're trying to sort of stamp out homeworking in the industry. And I just wonder, because of the period in which you made the book during the pandemic, do you think that maybe that had an impact because people couldn't go to the factories? I mean, in some cases they did and they had COVID safe work environments, but do you think that forced people to be working from home again during the pandemic, even in the garment industry? Yeah, I think from my perspective, I can't say for mm. sure whether that happened or not. Um, I know when I was speaking to Tan and her daughter, she mentioned that like she was still able to go into the factory during lockdowns because I think they had government contracts, which right. meant that they permitted them to be on site to work. Yeah, I mean, I can't say whether that, you know, the pandemic created an increase in people working from home. I do know that the factories we spoke to just had a really tough time during the pandemic overall. You know, orders weren't really coming in as much. They were relying on doing things like making masks and PPE for the government to get by and fashion labels overall, I think, struggled. So I think the flow and effect of, you know, retail and fashion not being able to sell during the pandemic probably meant that there were fewer jobs going to factories and therefore out workers as well. Yeah, that's really interesting. But also interesting at the same time, I think maybe since the end of the pandemic and, you know, during it, with the disruption in supply chains, there's also been this real return to local manufacturing, which has been really interesting to see. So just curious, thinking about the future of fashion in Australia and how that might shift again and what future patterns might look like for future books, maybe. (laughs) Um, I might pass over to you, Anissa. Um, One of the key points, I think you emphasise it at the end of the book, is that all clothes are handmade. Something that I think people often forget, especially when you think about fast fashion, um, all those sort of cheaper options that you can get, you forget that there are people behind all the clothes that we wear. So why was it such an important statement for you to make uh, in this book to remind people that all clothes are handmade? That came out of me because, number one, I was really cheesed off by certain brands in Australia who used handmade as their main marketing message. And, you know, they would position themselves as, we're an ethical label, everything we make is handmade in Australia or handmade by me. And I thought to myself, hang on, isn't all clothing handmade? Isn't There aren't any robots making the majority of clothing right now. Everything that you wear, that you buy, passes through a set of hands, whether that's on a production line or whether that's from a maker sitting in a factory or at home, anywhere in the world, you should value that person's labour. And I think, yeah, just the fact that all clothing is handmade, we need to remember that there was a person who made this for you and you need to look after the garment and also value the labour that went into it. Yeah, also to... Remember that with all clothes being handmade, there is a human pace and a human speed of how things are made. And with the fast fashion cycles or in our contemporary capitalist society, consumer society, everything goes by so fast with our hyper-connected media consumption as well. Just remembering that it can only go as fast as, as a person is able and willing to, to make it each garment. That is such an important reminder. In the book, you told the story of how these older home workers have to provide cheaper options for the label, right? So do you think that saying that all clothes are handmade, that could be something that people can really think about? Or is it something that it's still going to be hard even today when we think about offshore production? If I'm being realistic about it, 
you know, I, I look at the way that people consume and price wins at the end of the day. I don't know if rebranding and saying we should value all clothes more because they're handmade, I'm not sure if that message will cut through. I think the cost at the end of the day speaks louder for consumers. And like I, I get it, like not everyone can afford to pay a lot more for their clothing and I don't think we're at that stage yet where very ethical, sustainable labels can bring their prices down that much more either. I think if you can afford to pay a little bit more for your clothing or if you're willing to spend $200 on a night out, like think about what you're buying and what you're putting on your body and if you can afford to just pay a little bit more and, you know, value that item of clothing more, that's a good step forward. Not sure I have much to add or where the um, solution might lie, but maybe if more people of influence and power started dressing in more used, loved, you know, upcycled, visibly mended clothes, perhaps it can become a, a symbol that other people strive for. I think, I mean, yeah, that's a real call to action and thinking about Changing consumer behaviour is incredibly challenging, but thank you for those suggestions. They're really wonderful. And so I guess just maybe to, to end, what do you think is the kind of key takeaway that you want readers to take from this book? What call to action do you want it to have? Oh, this is such a big <laughs> question, isn't it? I mean, I really hope that, you know, this book provides a little bit of context as to what Australian Made has meant over the years and what it could mean in the future. It's a good warning against further subcontracting, not only in fashion, but in other industries as well, like we see in the gig industry. Um, we have workers who don't get super, who, you know, don't get minimum wages in some cases. So, you know, I'd like people to join the dots between what happened in the 80s in outworking and what kind of labour market we have now. And, you know, at the end of the day, I just want to pay respect to the Vietnamese community of aunties and uncles and their children who propped up the Australian manufacturing industry for those decades. And I hope people from other migrant backgrounds who also, you know, were factory workers and were out workers, I hope they feel proud of their, their work. I want these people to know that they were skilled, even if they weren't being fairly compensated for it. Yeah, I would wholeheartedly echo uh, and agree everything Emma just said. We also had a, a little personal goal to reach out to readers who were similar to us, second generation uh, Vietnamese Australians. Um, we wanted to give them a deep sense of belonging through this book. The fact that there's a very specific community out there of second generation Vietnamese Australian children who grew up amidst outworking parents and to make this common thread more public and known as well so that the conversations can keep going and we can find the others. That was Kim Lam and Emma Doe talking to Harriet Richards and Anissa Better for the Critical Fashion Studies podcast. The yarn is from the Centre for Advancing Journalism at the University of Melbourne. It's produced on the land of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation. A massive thank you to Harriet, Anissa, Emma and Kim. The Yarn's taking a short break, but we'll be back with new episodes soon. Thanks for listening and see you next year.